Welcome to the Kick-Ash Live podcast. Hi, Apollo. We are both so grateful that you're here. I'm really excited to share this interview with Carrie Honaker. She is a freelance writer who covers all my favorite things, food, wine, travel, and culture. I mean, so great. And I can't wait to introduce you to Carrie because she has such a gift for finding really interesting stories and topics and sharing them. But, you know, her story is amazing as well. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Before we get there, I need to set the stage. I'd like to put this interview into context with a bit of history and then some geography. I will tell you, those were not my best subjects in school, so we're going to keep it brief, but it does add some context and, um, you know, life is so richly textured when we do add context. Carrie and I spoke about a year ago. See, I accidentally owned a wine shop in a small coastal town. Yes, accidentally. One day I'll tell you more about that. But Carrie and I met at Mother's Wine Market. That was the wine shop to have a conversation. I was suddenly responsible for a brick and mortar shop. It was in its infancy. And I thought, why not interview members of the local community and share the stories of these really special people that I was meeting? We could do the interviews from the wine shop and it would benefit everyone in the local community. Except the shop was in downtown Panama City, Florida, and my kids and I are based in Atlanta. So I had to make the hard decision that ultimately it was not going to work. I will tell you that if you are going to own a brick and mortar business, which is a really special experience, being fully present is essential. It's so essential, especially if you are in a small town and the brutal process of closing a business, it was tough, but that's a story for another day too. Nonetheless, sharing stories, you know, this dream of a podcast where we talk about life, this was not going to let up for me. And so the lesson here for me was be willing to pivot and trust the timing. So here we are a year later, and some of the interviews that we had in the wine shop are so special. The conversations are absolutely too beautiful not to share. But before we get there, let's talk geography for just a moment. All of our conversation is set along what's called the Emerald Coast, and that is what we call the beaches that are along the panhandle of Florida. That's where I grew up. This area has a lot of names, okay, so bear with me, but it's also known as L.A. or Lower Alabama. It's been called the Redneck Riviera. I'm just reporting facts, y'all, but it's true. So let's talk about the Emerald Coast. Starting from the west, there's Pensacola. And if you head from there toward the east, just about 30 minutes down the road, there's my hometown of Pace, Florida. It grew up just like we did. Bummer. And then you continue east to Destin, Florida, and then Panama City Beach. I know you've heard of Panama City Beach. It was the spring break place to be back when I was in college. You probably saw it on MTV. Kenny Chesney sings about Panama City Beach and college spring break down there in his song, Keg in the Closet. Go look it up. It's fun. But continuing, if you were to drive another maybe 30 minutes east, you would land in downtown Panama City. And there's such a story here. Downtown Panama City is a revitalizing downtown area, and it's finding its way after 2018 when Hurricane Michael hit. It was absolutely devastating, and Mother's Wine Market opened in downtown Panama City about three years after the hurricane. So that puts where we were having our conversation, where we had our interview into context. But if you were to pop back west about one hour from downtown Panama City, there's a county road. It's called County Road 30A. And along 30A are these tiny little communities that are like, I would say they're like pearls strung along the white sand. These little beaches 
going from east to west are Rosemary, Alice, Seacrest, Seagrove, Seaside, where they filmed The Truman Show, Grayton Beach, Blue Mountain, and each of these little beach towns has its very own personality. But collectively, this area is also known as Santa Rosa Beach. We've got a lot of names for the same spot, but I really feel like maybe a spot that's so beautiful needs more than one name. The beaches are gorgeous. And the restaurant scene that you will hear us discuss is absolutely delightful. It's elevated. It's just the right mix of beachy and elegant. And you are going to hear Carrie talk about businesses along this coastline that she's written articles about. Behind every local business, there's a great story. In 2020, I bought a little fixer-upper in Seagrove Beach that's on 30A. And when I tell you it's a fixer-upper, I mean it was sold as is. And it is like a time capsule of beach life 25 years ago. I have, no kidding, pink glitter seashell wallpaper. There are sinks that are kind of pink colored that are shaped like seashells. And we've got this quintessential sand dune oil painting in a pink frame that was hanging above the sofa. I'll never get rid of it. It's a classic. And as a single mom, whenever I'm not with my kids, I find a way to get to the beach. As you will hear Carrie share, the beach for many of us is really healing. It is pure magic. In 30A, the beach in tourist season is a whole different animal. It is the best kind of nuts, but tourism in 30A is at its height. In contrast to that, in our talk, Carrie also talks about the Forgotten Coast. These are beaches to the east of 30A. These are beaches like St. George's Island and Apalachicola. It's called the Forgotten Coast because these beaches didn't get the same government tourism incentives that some of the other beaches along the coastline did. This is both a blessing and maybe a curse. What a blessing that there are largely untouched, uninhabited areas of coastline still. Just pristine and beautiful. On the other hand, businesses in this area missed out and continue to miss out on incentives that readily flow to other panhandle beaches. So it's a tricky conversation. It's one that is politically charged and it's a discussion perhaps for another day. It's not one that Carrie and I take on, but it does set into context some of the discussion. This Florida coastline along the panhandle is the territory that Carrie covered as she launched her freelance writing career. She talks about everything from, this is really cool, sustainable seafood through women oyster farmers in Apalachicola, which is along the Forgotten Coast, to one of my kids' very favorite restaurants in 30A called George's. So many happy memories there. These are close in proximity, but completely different worlds all of which, all of these worlds have great stories. And Carrie has a true gift for sharing other stories, for seeking them out. Carrie's own story is absolutely beautiful. And this is what I want you to think about. She says, everything I've done has led to this place. Isn't that true of so many of our paths? So as you listen, I would urge you to take the time to consider this. What has led you to this place. I would love for you to honor your own journey as you listen to Carrie's. And for goodness sake, follow Carrie on Instagram and Twitter. She's at right on Honaker at right W-R-I-T-E on O-N Honaker H-O-N-A-K-E-R. Follow her work. She has such a way with words. She has a curiosity for life a compassion for people's dreams, a real courage for facing obstacles, as you will hear. And she inspires me. So here's my lovely chat with Carrie. 
and at the end, I'll share some key takeaways, some rich little knowledge bombs, so stay tuned. Here we go. Carrie Honecker, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. Oh, I so appreciate you inviting me on. This is so much fun. We are going to have a good time. Okay. So I was reflecting before you joined us here today about the first time I met you and your husband. Mm -hmm. And it was at Mother's Wine Market where we are. And you were just having a nice afternoon, having a glass of wine. And we just chit-chatted. And I was new to the area. I didn't know Panama City very well at all when we opened the shop. Um, My business partner did. And I just thought you guys were so much fun. And I started following you on Instagram and learned that you were this incredible author (laughs) and you write about all the amazing things, travel, wine, culture, food, like I had to follow you. So I did a deep dive and I've just been watching you for the last year and I've enjoyed your work so much. And I'm so glad you're willing to sit down and talk about it with me. You're making me blush. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you guys, so Carrie has been published in uh, Voters Travel, Huffington Post, Mm -hmm. Wine Enthusiast. What am I missing? Bon Appetit, Local Palette. Oh my gosh. There's just been so many. Um, Simply recipes, spruce eats. Uh, I don't know. I could go on. There's a lot of them. This is so neat. I don't think I've ever sat down and, t- and talked with an actual journalist before. I don't know if you could call me that. Uh-huh. Like, and I'm pretty new to the game. I've only been writing for two years. That's this, the, I'm actually, I'm not even at two years. September will be my second anniversary. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize this. So you've been at this two years and you've been published in these big name magazines. This is the ultimate entrepreneur story. How did you even get started? So, hmm. When I was a kid, this is gonna go. We're gonna go in the wayback machine. Let's do it. Um, so when I was a kid, I grew up in very rural Vermont, and we didn't have cable TV. We didn't have anything. Basically, my parents would put us outside and say, "Go entertain yourselves." And my entertainment was reading and writing. And so, I kind of always really wanted to do something in that arena, like something with writing, and had always planned go to college and then maybe move to New York. Well, I had a child when I was 19 and had to leave school for a little while, but ended up coming back and and he's actually turning 30 this summer. I can't believe it. Yeah. (laughs) So I ended up going back to school with him kind of in tow and um, just sort of fell into restaurants. Restaurants were how I put myself through school. I'm a trained pastry chef. I've worked every position from dishwasher to line cook to server to host. I've done it all. Restaurant life is really its own microcosm. It's its own culture. Yeah. Like once you're in, it's not insular per se, but it's, and this is going to sound cliche, you become a part of this family that, you know, you do everything together because your hours are so crazy when you have kids and get married. It's kind of like they're your people and I lost my dad when I was really young. Actually, my son was only 10 months old. So yeah, when I was 19. So I was searching for family, I think, and I found them in restaurants. And so I worked my way through college um, with Dylan, my son. And at the end of it, I knew I couldn't move to New York and, you know, take on low paying writing jobs and that kind of thing. So I did the smart thing and opened a restaurant. (laughs) which that's completely sarcastic, not smart. Move, I know I've, but... I followed you, <laughs> <laughs> but I opened a little breakfast and lunch cafe and what was it called? Um, Taste Buds. I love it. Yeah, it was really fun. And I opened it in this small antique area outside of Tallahassee, I went to Florida State called Havana. And... <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Havana is this strange little um, community that for the merchants that are there, it works on a barter system. And so some of the other shop owners would come and get lunch. I would give them a tab. I would go into their furniture store and buy a piece on my tab there. And like not a lot of money's exchanged between the merchants, which was crazy and fun. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we had tons of tourists and they came and they, you know, antique dealers and stuff like that. And of course they paid cash, but the merchants themselves bartered. And so I did that for, well, I did it there for seven years. And then my lease was coming up. I was kind of ready for a change. 
I had been over to Panama City Beach a couple of times. And even though it has still had that kind of spring break touristy feel, I love the beach and I love being near the water and I was ready for something different. And so I closed my business there, packed everything up, moved to the beach, opened right across from, um, I think it's called Rick Seltzer. The, it's the, the pier park on Thomas Drive yeah. in a little strip mall. And it was small, 25 seats, but it was fun. I mean, I had a great time. I actually met my husband in Panama City Beach. He worked at the Navy base. He was a Navy diver and a, an engineer. And he came in the restaurant, loved it. I saw him eating bread pudding off the ground because it was so good. And oh, I was stop. like, <laughs> he was your guy, right? And there. I was like, you're, you're for me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, we got married and um, Olivia came after and we had the restaurant for a little while. And I decided that I wanted to, you know, be around my kids more. And I had the opportunity to stay at home because the restaurant had been successful. I was married at that point and I had some second income and so I actually sold to the couple that owned Liza's Kitchen. And that, that was my restaurant originally. Amazing. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. But I say, I kept my intellectual property because my husband is, you know, an attorney in a past life. So he was like, you can't sell your ideas. They you have to keep them. So, so his taste buds is still, you know, back there somewhere. Well, we attorneys come in handy once yeah, in a yeah. while. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually, I tried to stay home, but I'm a busy person and it made me crazy to like, have all this free time. So I already had a master's degree in English Lit. And in Florida, you can teach school if you have a master's degree in content area. So I actually taught high school for 10 years. What, in English? English, yeah. Yeah, yeah I taught at Arnold High School. Amazing. What did you learn from the kids? It was such an experience. I'm going to tell you that every teacher should be a business owner first. Huh. Because when you go into a classroom, it's like managing a business. I mean, every personality and every kid has different needs and things like that, but it's the concept of how to make the day-to-day operations work Yeah, translates to education so well. Oh, that's fascinating. Both my parents were teachers. Oh, okay. So I can't <laughs> wait to ask my dad about this. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 my husband and I talk about it all the time. I don't have an education degree. Like I have a content area degree. So I have deep knowledge in English. My master's was in English lit and I can teach, you know, books and authors and things like that and writing all day long. But I had never been through an education program where supposedly they prepare you to be in this classroom full of personalities. And I taught high school. So that was its own special thing. There's a lot (laughs) going on then. Yeah. Yeah. But I liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. Like I really enjoyed getting to know the kids and helping them discover books they would love and teaching them how to write and helping them through like their college essays and stuff like that. Yeah. It was just fun. So we started at Arnold and my husband and I talked about it and his family is in Roanoke, Virginia. We decided that we wanted the kids to be closer to family. And so I left Arnold and moved to move my teaching license to Virginia. And I taught actually at Virginia tech in their composition program and at their writing project. And I taught at a local public high school during the school year. So my son went to high school while I was teaching there. I never had him as a student because he hates books, which makes my heart hurt a little bit. Right. But I did have my daughter and I left teaching the year that she graduated. How was that having your daughter in the classroom? And I asked because I was in my mom's eighth grade history class. It was a little awkward. I didn't Um, know what to call her. So kind of funny. The first podcast that I ever did was with her. I was the photojournalism teacher a yearbook advisor. Uh-huh. And I was also the AP lit instructor. And so I had her for yearbook and I had her for AP lit at the same time. I had been playing around that area of writing that I love so much for a long time. Yeah. But in yearbook, I actually had to teach people how to do copywriting and editing and interviewing and things like that. And so I had to teach myself how to do that stuff. This is stuff that a lot of entrepreneurs need, but don't even know where to start. I agree. Yeah. I I was, I mean, my path, I've been lucky all along. Like everything has kind of, my husband always says that everything that I've done has kind of led to this place. Yeah. It's really unfolded so beautifully for you. So um, 
and the interviewing man, I'd like, I'm generally an introverted person. So having to learn how to interview people and work in an organic manner, as far as, you know, like conversation and stuff like that, it was really difficult for me. Okay. Asking for a friend, just kidding. Asking for me. How, how do you ask good questions? How do you interview people? I mean, a lot of the people in this space are interviewing folks and talking with folks. So how do you even know where to start to peel the layers back? Well, I think, I mean, for me coming from that awkward place of not being great at that kind of stuff, like I've always been good on paper. I've never been good in person. So I don't know, girl, I'm in person with you right now. I think you're great. (laughs) Uh, We'll see. (laughs) Um, So usually how I first did it was, you know, come up with a sheet of questions, read everything there was about that person, you know, try to really understand their lives before I went into it. And then get my questions. When I think when I first started interviewing, I was really down to make sure I answered all my questions. But as I've become more comfortable and I think more intuitive in my storytelling, I realized that, yes, you should prepare. You should know the person you're talking to. Like if I'm going to talk to a musician, I'm listening to their music. I'm reading other articles about them. Anything that sort of gives me an idea of where they've come from and sort of their world but I don't write questions anymore. I go into it and the first thing I say is, hey, I'm, I'm gonna take notes and record this just so we can have a conversation. Yeah. So I let them know up front that, you know, I am recording. <laughs> we did hit record today. We did. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's just an organic conversation. You know, I, I try to start off with something, if it's a musician, like I recently interviewed um, Low Cash, their country music yeah. duo. They were up for songwriters of the year or something like that. And I had never done a music writing piece before. And so I interviewed them while they were heading out with the CMAs. And so they were super excited. And I knew that um, that one of them had come from Arkansas and one of them had come from, I think it was Illinois. And one was a preacher's kid and one was, um, came from like a fishing family. And so I had, I had spent some time in their kind of origin story, if you will. And when I first talked to them, I just asked them a couple of things about where they grew up and the kind of music that they listened to and stuff like that. And that got the conversation opened. And then I asked them how they came up with their name because I was curious about it. And one of the guys he was like, nobody's ever asked us that before. And when they say that, that's when you know you're in a good spot. Yes. That's a sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you start delving into territory where nobody's been before, that's when you know you're really going to get good stuff. And so it came out that, you know, one of them had come up in a family that didn't have a lot and he and his friends had found ways to entertain themselves that didn't cost anything. And so they had called themselves the low cash boys amazing. And yeah. Um, later on when he was in Nashville and he met his partner, the other part of the duo, he's like, Hey, you got to meet my friends. And he brought them up there and they hung out doing these low cash things. And that's how they came up with their name. So, so fun. So you just, you stay curious and keep yes. the conversation going. Yeah. You yeah. Know, I think that's what it's about is yeah. finding those places. And I always try to find some connection. I interviewed the owner of Amici Amigos the other day for um, a restaurant program doing for 30A. And, you know, they do tons of interviews. There's some very stock things they're going to say. And she mentioned that her husband had grown up in Canada. I said, oh, well, I grew up in Vermont, right on the Canadian border. Montreal was my playground as a child. And and so it just brought us into this. It turns out they have gone skiing in Stowe, which is like my backyard. And, And they had got married and moved far away from their family kind of like I had. And so I always try to find those places where our lives intersect once I've established some sort of a conversation with them. And I think that brings trust to the conversation. And it also brings this element of understanding between the two of us. So I know that you interview a lot of folks on the panhandle of Florida. Yes. Including <laughs> in downtown Panama City. Yes. Um, and so you you know the, the local game and, and you're interviewing a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners, a lot mm-hmm. of brick and mortar folks. 
And so what do you see with folks who are in that space? Where's the struggle and where's the joy? I think it's so funny because like you said, I do interview a lot across the panhandle. So right now I'm working on an article about women oyster farmers in Spring Creek, which is over near Tallahassee area, but oh, kind of fascinating between Tallahassee and Apalachicola. Uh-huh. And I got to go out on the, on the farm with them, which is cool. So that's the cool thing about being a writer is you have all these experiences that I don't think you would ever have in like regular, like day-to-day life. I but, tell my kids all the time, experiences, not things. Yes. How we grow. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, they have a unique struggle because they're in an area that has been known for wild oysters. Apalachicola is yeah. the place for wild nice. before it was, before it was closed. So not only are they breaking barriers in gender by being women oyster farmers in a traditionally male dominated field, but they are trying to bring a new industry to the area that is very resistant. And so their struggle, and one of them actually bought um, the old Spring Creek Motel is going to turn it into kind of an ecotourism destination where people can come and work on the farm if they want to, and they can shuck oysters and have dinner and stay right on the, on the Creek and kind of experience what life is like there, which I think is, you know, that's the kind of vacation I want to take. So her struggles are, you know, finding contractors, finding people to renovate, being a woman's voice, trying to shepherd all of this remodel reconstruction building and things like that in an area that there aren't a lot of women business owners. Mm -hmm. And so her struggle is that, but her joy is, you know, establishing a space for a group of people that maybe wasn't there before. And she's big into the environment and conservation and stuff like that. And so she is bringing that to this area and that's, like setting up her recycling plant, which is one part of her business, is one of the things that's bringing her joy because she's going to bring that to the area. This area needs it so badly. Well, and on the Forgotten Coast, yeah. it's a totally different struggle. I was actually, I'm working on an article about downtown Panama City. And one of the things that really struck me was that after Michael, so much was devastated here. People lost homes, people yeah. lost jobs, businesses, things like that. But something clicked, I feel like, in Panama City itself, that there weren't big corporations coming to save them. Right. There wasn't insurance money that was flowing out easily. Right. Everything was taking time. And I feel like people banded together and said, nobody's going to save us. We need to save ourselves. Yes. And we're going to do this together. Right. Let's see what we can create together. And I feel like a lot of the there are business owners that grew up in this area and said, Hey, I want to make this a place where families want to live, want to come and like spend their time. But I also think there's a spirit here that people that have come to town like you feel. And it's that what you were talking about, that whole let's lift each other up. Yeah. I remember the first time I pulled into downtown Panama city and I just felt this energy it was just humming almost. There's this park right out here with a fountain mm-hmm. and lights and um, it's just beautiful. The um, art center has butterflies all over it. I just, there was something that just called to me here. And I, I said, I've got to be a part of this. It wasn't a rational decision. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, I'm not sure that business ownership is ever a rational decision. And I'm going to say that just as somebody who, opened a restaurant with a young child by myself with no money in the bank. Amazing. No, that was not rational. (laughs) No, but I think a lot of people, when we talk to them, their first places maybe were not the most like, sometimes you just have to move the gray stone. Sometimes you just have to do it and the success comes. Yeah. I think sometimes it's just a calling that if you tap into it, it starts to blow. I agree. I mean, I want to see this area take off. And I think I said, earlier, I feel like the hotel and the restaurant are good anchors. Like they're mm-hmm. going to put a lot of money into advertising. They're going to lift up the rest of the neighborhood because they want people to come stay there. So I feel like that's going to drive a lot, but it's still, 
over a year off of coming. So, yeah. Well, you write about three of my favorite things, right? Travel, wine, and food. (laughs) I mean, amazing. We're sitting in a wine shop. So what is it about wine that made you want to write about it? And what do you want people to know? Like when you write about wine, what's the mission there? Okay. So I have to say, no matter which lane I'm writing in, I'm always looking for the underdog. I always like to shine a spotlight on something that I think maybe people should know about, but they don't know about. So coming up in restaurants, I've, you know, trained in wine. I understand the grapes. I understand regions. I understand, you know, pairings and stuff like that. And everybody writes about that stuff. But when I first started writing, one of my first articles was about Florida's wine scene because nobody thought there was anything here. Everybody was like, the wine here is trash. There's nothing good that's growing in Florida that goes into a bottle. And so um, it was my first wine enthusiast article. I pitched the article to the editor. I didn't know her. I'd seen her on Twitter. Yeah. And I was like, hey, Florida's about more than amusement parks, alligator wrestling, and (laughs) beaches. There's this growing wine scene that nobody knows about. And she loved it. And so I wrote about all the different areas and Florida doesn't have, you know, ABAs or anything like that, but they have certain regions that grow certain types of grapes best. And it's actually the cradle of wine in America with the muscadine grapes. So even though some people don't love Florida wines because they tend to be sweeter though, they've gotten to lots of places where it's not always anymore. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of history here and there's a lot of people that are really doing amazing things with wine. And so for me, those are the stories I want to tell. And it was during the pandemic, which was a crazy time to, you know, you couldn't visit vineyards or anything like that. But I did interviews via Zoom. We walked around the vineyards virtually. Oh, neat. So it was really, it was a cool experience. And that article was the number one downloaded article for wine enthusiasts when it came out. Amazing. So people are interested in Florida wine. Just nobody had thought to write about it. And so that's kind of always my shtick is to find out what's going on that maybe nobody else cares about. Yeah. And one of the things I love about wine is every bottle sitting on these shelves in here has a story. Mm -hmm. It's somebody's passion project. It didn't just happen because they wanted to make a product and sell it. There's passion in every single bottle here and every label there's family behind it. There's community. It's such a cool journey. Well, I agree. And I always kind of um, categorize wine in the food, like kind of genre. And I feel like every story is a food story. Like everything can go back to sitting around the table, eating and drinking. So I guess, I mean, that's kind of what I look for. Yeah. I'm happy sitting around the table, eating and drinking. There you go. Everybody I mean, is. Yeah. <laughs> and you like to talk about locally sourced food. Yes. Tell me about where does one, when you live in our area, where do you get locally sourced food? What? So I'm a big proponent of the sustainable seafood industry. And um, I feel like for a long time, tourists that come here didn't necessarily, and even people that live here didn't necessarily understand the species that are native to this area, the, how the populations work, the fishing rules and things like that. So I always tell people, and I wrote a little bit about this, about how to shop for seafood, but find your markets. I understand you're going to go to Publix, you're going to go to Winn-Dixie and you're going to go different places, but look at the tags. If it says it's an Indo- it's from Indonesia and all these other kind of markers, like, you know, dull eyes and stuff like that you're not getting something that was caught on the ocean earlier that day. You're getting something that has traveled across an ocean in freezer trucks and the quality is just not there. And it doesn't let you taste what this area has to offer. And so I think the first thing is to seek out your local markets. So, you know, find your fish markets or go down to the dock and, you know, check out, what they're bringing in. There's a processor right down there that will sell to you. Same thing with coffee. There are roasters that are local to this area. Uh, Amavita is one in Santa Rosa Beach. They're a certified B corporation, which means they use 
only fair trade products. They pay their workers a living wage. Everything that they produce is with sustainable packaging. So I think it's about tuning into what's coming out of your area. And there are some really cool things in this area. Like I went to the farmer's market when I first moved back and met the lady from Registers Farm. Yeah. And got to go over and see the honey making process, which happens not that far from here. Their honey is so good. It is fantastic. The bee pollen too is so healthy for you. Just throw it on top of a smoothie. I agree. Yeah. And so I think for me, it's educating people to buy local, eat local, do as much as you can in this area because you can get snow crab in the Northeast. You don't need to get it here because it doesn't come from here, but here you can get amazing black grouper or Gulf prawns or whatever it is that's coming out of the ocean. I just think you're doing yourself a disservice if you travel to a place or if you live in a place and you don't taste the fruits of that area. I love that thought. We are so connected. We were made to be connected Mm -hmm. to where our feet are planted. We're made to be grounded. So what a good reminder to be doing that. Yeah. I want to ask you about this. Okay. Okay. So you write about food, wine, and travel, Mm -hmm. but you've had a personal experience lately that took you away from writing or like being in food, wine, and travel as much as you might like to be. We're celebrating you today. (laughs) We're celebrating you because you are a breast cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I actually rang the bell last Wednesday. So that was amazing. And it did, it changed my life a lot. I mean, cancer changes everybody's lives, but specifically for my career, which I really had just started, you know, a year ago, I was actually less than a year in and had just really started publishing stories and breaking into markets and things like that. And so when the diagnosis came in, I knew I couldn't travel. We were in a pandemic anyways, but being immunocompromised added an extra layer. So travel was, was not allowed. Um, I had surgery, so I had recovery time. The radiation treatments are every day, five days a week. Uh, Mine were three months. So you can't live the life that allows you to go to registers farm or to the vineyards or these places where you're going to experience these kind of local things. And so I really dug into what was going on here locally that I could tap into. There are tons of businesses in this area. There are tons of creators and producers in this area. And I think people see it as a vacation spot and, you know, spring break spot and things like that. But I knew that I could have those conversations and write about them when I was not able to go to places I wanted to go. And so I just pivoted like so many people did during the pandemic and started becoming more of a, a local to this area expert and picked up articles and picked up things that I thought people maybe didn't know about here that, you know, the stories like, yeah, maybe you go to George's every weekend and you love their fish and you love their atmosphere and stuff. And the story of moving the house, but did you know their executive chef was this Filipino woman who came over here, left her family when she was still a young person, left a career as an agrochemical chemist, started cooking and like learned from the bottom up while she was here. And I feel like those stories were here and people Mm -hmm. just didn't, they didn't think to expose them. Mm -hmm. And so dealing with the breast cancer and all of the treatments and the tests and the surgeries and everything else that goes into that. Yeah. I started building a career around what I could do here. I love that you didn't stop. You have a real passion for telling stories. I love to write. Yeah. But I've actually really just enjoyed getting to know people. I've been a very... Um, to myself person most of my life, Mm -hmm. which you'd never know owning a restaurant, like how you even be an introverted person, but you find a way. And so this has really opened me up to building relationships with people around me. Yeah. And if there can be a silver lining with, um, with breast cancer, 
it's that it's taught me to know my neighbors. Amazing. Because you could have curled up in a ball. Well, I did that some. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's allowed. I'm definitely, and living at the ocean, I think, I mean, I'm sure you know this too, but I live right on the beach. And so I walk the beach every morning. And even though during radiation, I had to be bundled up like a snowman because the sun reacts differently to your skin then, it still is centering to look at the tides and see kind of that ebb and flow. And so luckily for me, I lived in a place where it was easier to maybe find my way. I agree because I split my time between a big city and here. And when I get my toes in the sand and I see the waves coming in, it puts things in perspective. Mm -hmm. I get grounded. I heal physically, emotionally, all of that. There's something about being connected to the world in that way that is so powerful that a city won't give you. I'm so glad that you had that in your life to help you heal in your journey. And I'm so in awe of your strength for pulling through it. I mean that because I've followed you on Instagram, but I hadn't seen you in here in a while. And when I reached out for us to talk today, you told me what was going on and I would have never known. I would have never known. And it takes so much character to pull through that the way that you have. So thank you for being that example. I appreciate that. But I also think that with chronic illness, with things like breast cancer, Mm -hmm. as much normalcy as you can have in your life is really what you want because everything else is out of control. So the things that you can control, like my career, as much as I could, you try to keep, I think, in your pocket, or at least I did. It worked for me. Good. And that's not to say that it's going to work for every person. And Mm -hmm. breast cancer is different for every person. You know, when I first was diagnosed, they said it was going to be this way and it was completely not that way. When I went for surgery, they said this was going to happen and it didn't happen. And so each step of this journey has just shown me that we're all individuals and everybody goes through the journey in a different way. And I think, you know, everybody wants to be positive and celebrate your victories and things like that. But I think that survivors look back and realize that it's something that never leaves you. It's something that changes you irrevocably. Like I am not the person I was last year, but the individual journey, I think really teaches you something about yourself. Maybe that, you know, somebody that doesn't go through that will never learn. What did you learn? Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I posted a list actually of this, my lessons on Instagram and Twitter after it happened with a picture of me ringing the bell. But um, I mean, one of the first things you have to be your own advocate. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned through this is that it's not some, you know, spirituality or, or like believing in myself or something, because I'm a strong person. I've done hard things in my life. I had a a baby as a teenager. I finished college. I opened a restaurant. I've done some hard things. So I don't think like surviving things is what I learned. I think I learned that you have to stand up for yourself. When a doctor says, you know, this is the surgery you have to have, you have to say, I've done the research and this is what I think we should do. And it's my body. I'm going to do it. Amazing. Yeah. So I think those are hard conversations to have, particularly when you're feeling a bit defeated in the first place. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But that's the thing. And it's carried over in other parts of my life, you know, in my career, when you first start out freelance writing, you can have great success right off the bat. I mean, I'm not going to say that you can't, but mostly you take lower paying jobs until you get to the point that, you know, people say, oh, well, you're a proven asset and we can commission this piece and pay you, you know, what we should be paying you. And I think I was very lucky that one of my first commissions was Bon Appetit and they pay really well. And I think it was the fact that I understood the food world from so many different angles that I was able to sell my story. And it was about this pizza stone that 
I used during the pandemic to cook everything. Like I cooked a whole fish on it. I cooked a pie on it, like all kinds of things. But anyway, they were one of my first commissions and they paid really well. But after that, I did have a lot of people that paid me less or offered me less. And I think there's this mindset and this happens, I think in all entrepreneurial situations, you have this fear of scarcity. Like, if I don't take this right now, nothing else is going to come down the street. If I don't do this one thing, if I'm not open this one day, then I'm going to drive people away or people are not going to want my service or not going to want my writing or whatever. I know this fear yeah. in both of my businesses. Yes. I, so you. I think scarcity mindset is something that yeah. is really difficult to overcome, especially as a new entrepreneur, as a new writer. And going through cancer taught me that no is a complete sentence and that's not mine. Like I got it from somewhere else, but I love it. We all need that in our life. We need that phrase. Yeah. And so when you put yourself out there and say, I want to tell this story to an editor and they say, well, that's great, but we're only going to pay this and we want it done next week. Pre-cancer me would have been like, well, I need to take that job because if I don't, then I may not get another one. And I may upset this editor and I'll never be able to work with them again. Post-cancer me is, hey, that rate doesn't work for me. That timetable doesn't work for me. This is what I can do. And if you would like the story, these are my terms. And wow, I think for me, that was the most powerful thing. <laughs> That's the word that was in my head. That is such a powerful shift. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, I think, having owned like a brick and mortar business and having done catering and things like that. And then having a regular job and now being out on my own again, when I talk to business owners, I think that's the thing that I understand and can establish trust is that all of us are afraid of not being able to open the next day or not being able to, do that 100 person dinner that, you know, maybe would open a door for us. And we all have this fear of not being enough. And I think you have to just let that go. And you have to realize that you can do it. And if you couldn't do it, you wouldn't have been doing it to begin with. Be your own advocate. That's my thing. What a beautiful place for us to end. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. That, that's not an, uh, I can't imagine that it's an easy thing to share. I'm so grateful that you. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and being interested. And I mean, I'm not a brick and mortar business owner. I'm just a writer. So this is a definitely a very different lane than probably most of the people you're talking to. I think you're more than quote, just a writer. You are so much and you're telling so many people's stories and stories need to be told. So we learn from one another that way. I have one last question for you. Sure. All right. You might be a local if. What is it a local knows that um, somebody who's not from around here would, wouldn't discover? Are you talking about Panama City? Yeah. Or on the beach? Whatever. Whatever feels good to you. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Like my, my brain obviously goes to restaurants. Um, <laughs> there's a couple things I've learned over the years, and especially being in a tourist area. Yeah. You might be a local if you know that Wednesday is the best night to dine out and avoid crowds. And you can always get seating at the bar, even in places like Alice Beach at the Citizen when it's line out the door. So if you're willing to sit at the bar, talk to the bartender, who sometimes the coolest person in the place. Oh, they have the best stories. They do have the best stories. If you're willing to go out during the week rather than the weekend and sit at the bar, you're a local for this area. You are my people. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. I love that. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited about the series. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Isn't that just the best? Here are some takeaways that I jotted down. Number one, I was searching for family. I found them in restaurants. Number two, finding places where our lives intersect brings trust and understanding. Number three, 
experiences, not things. Number four, business ownership isn't necessarily a rational decision. I second that. Number five, Florida is about more than amusement parks, alligator wrestling, and beaches. Six, every story is a food story. Seven, buy local, eat local. Eight, no is a complete sentence. Nine, ask for the compensation that you deserve. Ten, all of us are afraid of not being able to open the next day. Let that go. Eleven, talk to the bartender. They're often the coolest person in the place. Finally, I am not the person I was last year. I am not the person I was last year. Thank you for listening, for sharing this time with us. I urge you to follow Carrie at Right on Honaker. If you love food, wine, travel, and a beautiful way with words, you need Carrie in your life. Also, Carrie is way beyond the Florida panhandle now. She is one year cancer free and living in the moment. She's traveled all over. And as she says, eat the damn dessert and bread and give yourself some grace. If this conversation resonated with you or it would touch the life of someone you know, please share it. Tag Carrie if you share it on socials. And just know that we are so grateful you spent this time with us. You are amazing. And I know that you have a story. Share it. It really matters. Wishing you the best week.